I, I think empathy is part of our human nature. And it's so important to, to show that empathy and hospitality to the international students that we have in America. We can be empathic with all because we, we share these common human values, especially around education. Welcome to Higher Education Without Borders, a podcast series dedicated to education professionals worldwide. This series is hosted by Dr. Sentel Nathan and Dean Hoke, Managing Partners in Edu Alliance. Each episode is a conversation with thought leaders that will enlighten and provide some new thoughts on critical issues facing higher education. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to Higher Ed Without Borders, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dean Hoke in Bloomington, Indiana, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Central Nathan, who is located in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Central, we have a great guest today, and would you please introduce him? I'm really privileged to introduce Dr. Alan Goodman. He is the sixth president and CEO of the Institute of International Education, IIE, the leading not-for-profit organization in the field of international educational exchange and development training. Previously, Dr. Goodman was executive dean of the School of Foreign Service and professor at Georgetown University. Dr. Goodman served as the presidential briefing coordinator for the director of CIA in the Carter administration. Dr. Goodman has a PhD and MPA from Harvard and a BS from Northwestern University. He also holds honorary degrees from several universities. Uh, Alan, uh, welcome to the show. As you review the 100 plus years of IIE, what are some values of IIE that you think have stood the test of time and what uh, values in your view have evolved over a century? First, Sentil, it's great to appear on the show with you, and thanks for your great work in higher technology colleges and now uh, Education Without Borders uh, in this show. Uh, uh, the striking thing about IIE's 100-plus years of history is that we are able to continue to operate and constantly expand educational horizons and borders despite all kinds of weather, uh, conflicts, economic downturns. Uh, COVID-19 is our uh, 12th pandemic in IIE's history. Uh, even during COVID and even back in the 1920s uh, when there was the Spanish influenza, it was still possible to have academic exchanges. So I think maybe our greatest strength is a commitment to that, a commitment to rescuing scholars when they're in danger and a commitment to always trying to keep the doors open and widen access. Alan, your work work has certainly impacted many individuals around around the world, world, and not not only just just students, but the scholars alike. Is there there any one one or two individuals individuals you remember remember during your tenure, tenure, current tenure, tenure, um, that that really really struck, really hit you, really affected you? I'd be kind, kind of curious, curious if there's, there's been, been people over a period of time that really have had, had an impact on you. Well, in our, in our history, uh, uh, alumni, grantees, develop, directors of IIE have 
been the recipient of 107 Nobel Prizes. And, and these are in literature, medicine, physics, uh, peace. And not everyone, I'm sure, who won one of those prizes thought they were going to get a Nobel Prize. So you never can tell uh, what international education will do for someone and will do for the world, um, whether it's invent a vaccine, a medical procedure, end a conflict. Um, in, in, in my tenure, I'm most struck with the scholars we have rescued from Iraq and Syria and many other places. Uh, they go through tremendous amounts of danger and trauma. We place them in safe havens, uh, whether it's in the Gulf near where they're coming from or in America or Europe. And they, they accomplish just a tremendous amount while they're on the fellowship and regain their lives. And then they're committed uh, to making it safe for others to have the same experience that, that they've had. I'm most struck with a woman from Iraq and a woman from Syria uh, had faced tremendously threatening and dangerous circumstances, were able to come to the United States uh, uh, create new medical procedures to help our veterans who were suffering from post-traumatic stress and other neurological disorders. Uh, and, and you never know who's going to save your life. But by saving the lives of scholars, we, we increase the chances that those discoveries are out there. These women uh, also commit themselves, uh, some to go back, when it's safe to do so, and, and then some to become agents of rescue themselves uh, and to open their labs uh, so that others can be helped, both students and scholars. So I'm most struck with uh, the individual courage uh, and the commitment to give back regardless of the circumstances in which they had to be rescued or arrived. So, Alan, in that case, whether it's Iraq or even, I guess, what we're seeing in the Ukraine situation, some of the other places, do you have people on the ground? Do you have multiple, I know you have multiple locations, but are you physically involved in trying to, to help get these people out of the country? I'm curious about how this works. We, we have lots of volunteers from U.S. embassies, other government embassies. There are many many sources of help to identify a scholar uh, and the scholar themselves often gets them gets themselves into a position from which they can be rescued but each rescue is is really different each case is really different uh, you we've been doing this since 1920 scholars are are often uh, gravely threatened but very reluctant to leave because they have clinics that they run they have PhD students they're supervising and and uh, they really are not seeking asylum they're not seeking to be uh, refugees they they'd like to stay as long as they can and by the time they reach us their situations are very complicated uh, but each case is really different under your uh, 23 years of leadership uh, you have seen great opportunities uh, for example doubling of international students studying in the States for the last two decades. Uh, and you also seen quite a few challenges. Uh, you mentioned a few, uh, pandemic recently, but 9-11 and other, other political situation as well. Can you talk 
talk to us a little bit about how you navigated these opportunities and challenges. Well, well, 9-11 for uh, America was a, a, a watershed event moment, and it would have been really easy for us to turn our back on the world to say we shouldn't have any foreign students coming here. There was for a brief time a bill in Congress to call a halt to international student mobility to the U.S., and, and, and America turned around. It, it said, no, this is... Um, uh, more important than ever that we keep our doors open, more important than ever that we welcome students from all over and from every walk of life. And, and we, do, we don't brand a country or a people or a religion as, uh, as being hostile to America. We, we think of education as one of the best investments to make the world less dangerous. And time and time again, whether it was 9-11 or the pandemic, uh, I think the U.S. has found a way to stand up to keep our doors open. And that, that's a core value of IIE, a core value of America. And I think one of the reasons why uh, we are a major, the major destination for international education in the world. Ellen, let's, let's switch a little bit. We've been talking about scholars that have come to the United States and a lot of fascinating things. But, but I've noticed in my years working in higher education how few American students go abroad. And it appears that IIE has been taking on the challenge for a long time. It has a new program that I think is called American Passport Program, if I remember right. Can, Can you, you talk, talk about, about that and why you started that and how it's being used? And you could walk us through that. Pretty much every year I try to get data on the percentage of Americans that actually have a passport. And I think currently it's about 38%. Uh, now we're a very big country. Uh, we have many educational opportunities. Uh, half of our college students are going to school within 50 miles of home. So unlike Europe where the, another country is, a ten, is an hour away, uh, our 48 continental states and 50 states, if you include Alaska and Hawaii, can be pretty self-contained. So I start with the challenge that, uh, uh, that so many Americans don't have a passport. The 38% who do, half of them are over the age of 60. So they, they have a passport for tourism, basically, and probably touring with other Americans. So we have a real challenge to make sure that our college-age students have a passport. And, and for, for some, especially first generation, their parents will say to them, it was hard enough just to get to college. Why, why do you actually need to study abroad? So we've figured out, because we believe international should be part of everybody's education, that the first step is uh, getting the 21st century driving license which is a passport. And all young people want a driver's license, and we think all young people should want a passport. So in this decade, we're going to try to get 10,000 passports for college students of limited means, but do it through their college and, and start in their freshman year so that they can make a plan uh, early on in their educational career and trajectory for where it'll fit and use the college global 
affairs or international office to help advise them. Now that you've got the passport, here's when you should use it, here's the places you can go, here's how to make the experience safe. So we're trying to enlist the student, their parents, college advising network uh, to come up with an educational plan so that uh, the passport actually will get used in the four years that they're in undergraduate education. And in this case, about how many schools so far, I, know, I realize this is, I think, your second intake at this point in time, about how has this gone so far with the American universities? Have most of them been receptive to this? How? Tell me, walk me through that a little bit. Yes, we, we're making uh, about 40 uh, college awards a year. We're getting about 200 colleges, universities applying for it. Uh, uh, increasingly, uh, I, I think we'll get increasing numbers as the program takes off and as they begin to have actual travel and show results. Uh, so I, I think most American campuses want to do this and they want to help students of limited means have this study abroad opportunity. And what we're finding is that students of limited means uh, also have the dream of studying abroad. Uh, they also want to have the chance to do that. They've got to coordinate lots of other challenges in their lives, but that's why we're starting with them as freshmen, because it gives us time to plan. One quick follow-up, and then let me turn it over to Sentel on that, that if an American university happens to be listening to this podcast or someone else and wants to learn more about this, do they just go on your website? How should, how should they find out? Um, the website is just fine, or email me directly. I have a very simple email. It's a good man, my first initial and last name, all is one word, at iie.org. Or go to the website, iie.org, and just search under uh, the American Passport Program. Thank you. Central? Alan. Uh... The IIE is not just of uh, professional interest to me or academic interest, it's personal. Uh, when I came, went to the US for the first time uh, in 1983 as a PhD student, I had no family, no relatives in the US. My first family was a IIE host family. Uh, that, that still stuck to my mind. You know, they were so kind, they would uh, receive me at their home. Uh, so that's, that's the first family I saw in the US. And about 25 years later, when my daughter went to school, um, thanks to your help, she her first uh, internship experience was working for IIE with the Iraqi scholars. So it's uh, what, uh, as international students, many of us have observed is the empathy, which uh, I, I believe you personify. Um, and the idea of this podcast is, is as, as it is uh, beaming to uh, thousands of uh, international academic leaders. Can you talk to us uh, about the importance of empathy uh, in, in order to be a successful leader in a, in a cross-cultural organization, global or multinational organization, uh, from your experience and from what IIE stands for? I, I think empathy is part of our human nature, and it's so important 
to, to show that empathy and hospitality to the international students that we have in America. We have about a million international students at any given time. Uh, they, most of them actually pay tuition. Uh, they certainly patronize local communities, uh, room and board and supplies. Uh, so they're a major contributor to local economies. And I think people, people in college towns recognize that. Uh, people across America recognize that. Uh, uh, I, I, I remember it, it was a pleasure to host Joanna as an intern at IIE, but what really struck me is what she did the next year as an international student by inventing a medical device that I believe got patented. And, and that, that's the story of so many of our international students. Uh, they, they figure out with our resources and our labs something that can benefit the rest of humanity. And at the end of the day, if you get together a group of international students in a room, they'll look differently, they'll dress differently, they'll have different accents, but when you ask them what, what it is they'd like to do, it's the same as us. They'd like to live in peace, they'd like to have an education, they'd like to provide an education for their children. Uh, so we can be empathic with all because we, we share these common human values, especially around education. Ellen, what are some of the ways that IIE has helped international universities enhance their quality and offerings? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's important for international universities uh, everywhere to be part of a larger framework uh, and to navigate their local requirements and, and accreditation, and attracting students and re working with their governments and, and also working uh, across regions, across continents uh, to do the same, to provide uh, quality assurance, uh, accreditation that's internationally recognized and to reach out to students um, intentionally and, and everywhere as, as might fit their policy. Uh, we, we have a partnership program that's uh, probably 25 years old. Uh, we've written a couple of books on international university partnerships, best practices, uh, MOUs that work, MOUs that die, MOUs that could be improved. Uh, uh, so we, we find getting together uh, the university leadership um, uh, and the international counterparts uh, arranging reciprocal visits uh, and then helping draft in those agreements. Uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it is not rocket science, but it's important to realize uh, all the elements that go into it because we, we fundamentally believe that these relationships are, are best maintained when they're at, in, at the institutional level. And all too often in the past, uh, uh, relationships live or die based on whether the faculty member who originally wrote the MOU is still at the institution or left. And so we, we think these delegations and partnerships bring, uh, br bring institutions together and that allows the relationships to last much longer. Yeah, in fact, I just want to quickly follow up uh, on that, Alan, what Dean asked. Uh, uh, You've done quite a bit in Middle East, North Africa, and the South Asian side uh, in, in terms of university partnerships and improving universities. 
does anything stand out any of those uh, uh, projects that you have done in this region the middle east north africa or south asia i i think what strikes me most is if you if you have a good foundational base if the institutions realize why they're creating a partnership it'll last through covid and last through regional wars it uh, it will last through political tensions between the governments of each country um, because the institutions know how it benefits their students their faculty and their longer term vision uh, shortly we'll be having a delegation uh, maybe our largest in history uh, rediscover greece and greece is rediscovering america um, the the uh, minister of uh, higher educa education and religious affairs uh, and the rector's conference have uh, renewed their interest in cooperation between greek and american institutions of higher education and and that's been just magic uh, and over the, we were to go uh, when, just before COVID broke out. Uh, we've continued to work on the relationships and each school in the U.S. picking a school in Greece that they would work with. Uh, we've done a lot of Zoom meetings. Uh, so even when the world is locked down, uh, building these partnerships has, uh, uh, has, has been able to go forward. Uh, so I, I'd say this is a pretty much global activity of IIE um, because higher education is global and the desire to have relationships is global. Our last uh, question is about the Fulbright program. Yeah. We can't talk about IIE without talking about Fulbright program that you've been running for uh, many, many years. Uh, can you uh, explain and illustrate the impact of the Fulbright program over the years and how it is still relevant to the world today? Th thank you. And we're really honored to administer Fulbright on behalf of the U.S. Department of State. Uh, it's a program that started in Congress. It's still appropriated by Congress. Uh, and last year marked its 75th anniversary, so it, it has stood the test of time. I think to me, the biggest impact um, is that it's bi-national and global at the same time. That if, uh, that, that it, it's not focused on one region in particular, it's not focused on one set of country relationships. Uh, and so from 150 different countries, Fulbright has students and scholars coming to America. But it also means that Americans, because of the bi-national quality of the of the relationships, uh, it means that Americans are going to practically 150 different countries instead of all going to England, Ireland, Australia, and the English-speaking countries. So, so I think it's changed the dynamic and nature of American study abroad. It's really made it possible for relationships to be balanced and reciprocal. Um, and, and it's also deepened the institutional relationships uh, because the Fulbright scholars generate Fulbright student applications. Uh, Fulbright students generate more uh, Americans wanting to study abroad where they just came back from and more scholars doing in-depth research uh, between their home and host institutions. So it, it, it's had 75 years of impact and it's impacted 150 plus different countries. And without it, uh, I'm not sure we would be uh, our students and our faculty would be going to that 
many places or we'd be having people from all over the world coming here. Well, Alan, we're about the end of the program. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Um, and again, for our listeners, we've been speaking with Dr. Alan Goodman, Chief Executive Officer of the Institute of International Education. This concludes this episode of Higher Ed Without Borders. And of course, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest future guests or just give an opinion, we'd love to hear from you. Go to www.higheredwithoutborders.com. We have a comment section. And yes, we do read the comments. So on behalf of Dr. Central Nathan, Edge Alliance, our production team, and myself, and of course our guest, thank you very much. And make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. EDU Alliance is an international higher education consulting firm with offices in Abu Dhabi since 2014 and Bloomington, Indiana since 2017. Nathan and Hoke, along with their team of experienced education professionals, have assisted over 30 universities in nine countries. If you wish to learn more about Higher Ed Without Borders, please go to our website at www.higheredwithoutborders.com. You will find details on our podcast, contact information, and Edu Alliance's services. Thank you.